Good evening. Welcome to the uh, September 2020 meeting of the Chinese Historical Society of Southern California. This actually begins our 46th season of providing programs and uh, interesting uh, knowledge of our, our vast history in the US. Uh, we know that uh, there have been many, many accomplishments by Chinese Americans over the years, over the centuries, actually. And one of the, the most well-known marvels has been the construction of the first transcontinental railroad. Uh, last year, 2019, we celebrated the 150th anniversary of the completion of that railroad. At the time, it was lauded as the one of the greatest construction and engineering uh, projects of the century. And uh, we have a couple of experts to share with us a little bit more about the uh, process that went into this and the role and the involvement of Chinese in it. Uh, we have a we're honored to have a couple of scholars with us tonight. Uh, one is uh, Gordon Chang. He's the uh, Oliver Palmer Professor in Humanities and a Professor of History at the History Department of Stanford University. Uh, and he's also a Senior Associate Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education. Uh, he's uh, written much on the history of US-China relations and Asian American history. Uh, oh, by the way, he's been on the faculty since 1990. In 2019, he published Ghosts of Gold Mountain the epic story of the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and co-edited the Chinese and the Iron Road, building the Transcontinental, which was published by the Stanford University Press. So we're honored to have uh, Dr. Gordon Chang with us. Uh, but I'll, let me quickly also introduce our second uh, speaker, and, and they'll just uh, segue into each other. Uh, William Gao is a former Chinese Historical Society board member. Glad to see you, Will. And uh, he's been uh, vice president of the Historical Society as well. He co-produced a uh, documentary that the Historical Society uh, created back uh, about uh, more than 10 years ago, Revisiting East Adams with Jenny Cho. And he also served as the project director for the Historical Society's Chinatown Remembered Project. Will holds a PhD in Ethnic Studies from UC Berkeley, and he currently serves as a lecturer at Stanford University, where he teaches courses in Asian American Studies, American Studies, and History. He's a contributing author to the book, The Chinese and the Iron Road, which uh, both Gordon and Will will talk more about. So uh, without further ado, uh, please, uh, uh, Dr. Chang, Gordon, please take it away. Thanks, Gene. Uh, thank you, Historical Society, for inviting me. Uh, I'm pleased to be with you uh, remotely. As you can see, uh, well, you can't see. I put this in the background here. This is, I'm calling from Northern California. I wish I could be with you in person. It's really much uh, more exciting, and also for me as a speaker, to be able to see and be connected to uh, a live audience. But we can only do what we can do right now in the crisis. Uh, I only have about 10 minutes. I was only given about 10 minutes. The time will go quickly. And I just want to share with you an overview. And then so we'll have lots of time for discussion and questions afterwards. 
I'm going to share my screen with you to show a few uh, screens, uh, slides. <clears throat> you know, the Golden Gate Bridge was considered a great marvel of engineering and construction in the 1930s when it was built. But uh, the, the, as Gene said, perhaps the greatest construction project, certainly in the United States, maybe even rivaling that in the world with the Suez Canal, was the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, which was completed in 1869. And it made the United States whole. Before the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, it took six to eight weeks to get from New York to San Francisco. Um, and it was a perilous uh, route. Uh, you could go overland, you could go down by ship to uh, Panama and walk across Panama and come up by ship on the other side or go all the way around the southern tip of Latin America. Six to eight weeks it would take you and many people died along the way. Or you go overland, you go out to Omaha, Nebraska, and then you walk the rest of the way from Omaha to California. It was, uh, 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 even though California was a state in 1850, the country was really divided literally politically because of the Civil War, but also geographically. After this Transcontinental Railroad was completed, it took six to eight days to get from one coast to the other coast. And so that had a transformative influence on culture, on politics, on the geopolitics of the country, and the movement of people back and forth, east and west, west and east. Uh, and now, how did this uh, marvel get completed? Uh, the western portion of the transcontinental ran from roughly Salt Lake City to Sacramento. And that was built almost entirely by Chinese labor. And we don't appreciate it today, but 90% of the construction labor on that route was Chinese. Uh, and it was really quite astounding, and even observers of the time saluted the Chinese effort. But over time, they were often left out of the picture, neglected, or pushed out of the picture entirely. Now, this is the, the railroad history is foundational for Chinese America. It is part of our history. More Chinese worked on the railroad than probably any other occupation well up into the late 19th or early 20th century. Up to 20,000 Chinese labored on the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, I start off with a slide to try to grab your attention. This is Stanford University. And when I began the project some years ago, I had a discussion with a friend of mine uh, about the, the, uh, the, the railroad project. Uh, and, and he uh, said, he asked his mom, do you know anything about the Transcontinental Railroad? And she said, she was a laundry woman. She's actually, they live down in Los Angeles. And she said, yeah, uh, you know, you don't, you know why the roofs of Stanford University are colored red. And she, he said, no, mom, you know, why are they colored red? And she said, because they're stained with the blood of Chinese railroad workers. And he was floored. And he told me that story and I was floored. And this was part of the lore that circulates among Chinese Americans. Now to contrast that, uh, if you take a tour, you know, by student led tour on campus, you might hear this story. Uh, which I actually heard when I took a little tour around campus uh, last year. And the tour guide leader said, you know, very proudly, you know why Stanford University's roofs are red? And no one really had an answer. And he said, because Jane Stanford, the wife of Leland Stanford, wanted to be sure that her son, Leland Stanford Jr., who had died tragically uh, at the age of 16, that he could see his university from high above in heaven. And when he looked down. So those were two, I mean, it's, it's really quite astounding contrast in these two stories uh, of how the university is understood and how the railroad itself is also understood. Now, um, 
the the railroad and this is also uh, understood uh, this this highly this very popular uh, circulated photo many of you've seen this this is the shaking of east and west as is titled is maybe the, the most famous photograph from the 19th century and it purports to show the conclusion of the completion of the transcontinental railroad but as many people point out many chinese americans point out that there are no chinese in this photo and so all these guys and you can tell most of them are not workers they're dressed too well uh, to be workers and they're saluting and, uh, and celebrating all, all of this and it's and it's understood many people say look the chinese are deliberately pushed out of the frame they're not in the picture literally and figuratively so uh, just like in history the Chinese are not there. Um, now, when I started this project, in fact, I saw this picture. So I saw this picture and really studied it carefully. And in fact, I think there is a Chinese man right there. Uh, but his back to us, he's not facing the camera, his clothes are all tattered, it's, it's thread-worn and patched up. He's got a worker's hat on, and he's trudging around in the dust here, really not that into the hoopla. Now, that's the way much of the history of the railroad has been given to us. The Chinese are marginal, perhaps even forgotten um, uh, to us uh, uh, as uh, to today. Now, in fact, the Chinese uh, were instrumental in constructing the railroad uh, from, uh, from California to uh, Utah and uh, uh, made along the way four guys enormously wealthy. And again, they're the ones who are usually cited as responsible for the railroad. Leland Stanford, uh, as you can see here, is a biography of him. He's a war governor, railroad builder, as if he built the railroad and founder of Stanford University. And over here, you have the big four, including Charles Crocker, Collis Huntington, and uh, Mark Hopkins. And Huntington is the name that you guys down in Southern California should know well, because Huntington is all over the place from Huntington Beach to the Huntington Library. Uh, but all that wealth oops, came from uh, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, now, there's another picture here, which also illustrates this erasure of, of history or this distortion of history. And here you see this large painting up in Sacramento with uh, Leland Stanford in the center and Chinese uh, literally at their feet and other workers and a gathering of luminaries who come to celebrate the great uh, Leland Stanford. Now this picture, it really is in fact, uh, based upon this photograph. And this photograph, you can see the composition of this uh, painting was based upon this photograph. But here in the photograph, you can see the Chinese workers literally laying the last rail, right here and right here. These workers, 50 years later may have been these guys who were brought out. But this, uh, just to being able to give this little interpretation to, uh, to you, took us in the Railroad Workers Project at Stanford, which I helped lead, took us eight years to uncover. And what we wanted to do, and what I've tried to do in the book, Ghosts of Gold Mountain, was to present a history of the lived experience of the Chinese, to recover their work experience, to try to reconstruct what it was like to live, work, and die on the railroad uh, of these up to 20,000 workers. At the high point, maybe 12,000 Chinese at any one point were working on the railroad. Uh, up to 2,000, up to 1,200, or maybe even more died in the construction of the railroad. 
But these figures, this knowledge is uh, not, you won't find in most textbooks or many of my textbooks. So Will's gonna talk a bit about this. Um, but uh, they, this is a fundamental part of Western American history, US history because of uh, the significance of the transcontinental railroad. Without the Chinese, the railroad would not have been finished. And also very importantly, the foundation for what we would call Chinese America. The Chinese railroad workers, after they completed their work uh, and on the railroad that they helped uh, construct, went all around the country. So Chinatowns have Chinese communities in Arizona, in Texas, in Chicago, in New York, all, all sprung up after the Transcontinental Railroad. And many of those places, uh, Chinese railroad workers went to open up shops, restaurants, and to also work on railroad lines themselves. So the, the Transcontinental Railroad was, uh, was transformative for the country and for the Chinese American community. Well, I wish I could talk a lot about the uh, experiences uh, and share with you, and maybe we can in the question and answer period. I hope that you get to look at the two books, which really go into the substance of this history much more than I can in this short period of time. One of the things we did was just to even go back and look at what newspapers at the time were saying about the Chinese. It's not that they were neglected or uh, uh, slighted at the time, but many observers, you know, such as this, uh, you can see in this, in this uh, article here, um, recognized the central significance of the Chinese in the construction of the railroad. Uh, I'll just leave it with here to show you, this was a famous picture of the Chinese building, one of the trestles. Here, these are all Chinese here, you can tell by their hats. With a magnifying glass, you can look over here and see hundreds of Chinese breaking down the hill, putting in, uh, grabbing rock and gravel to build up the uh, uh, embankments here. There are Chinese all over here. And no one really looked at this until we did with magnifying glass to look at even the evidence that we did have before. Now, just think about it. Here is one of those astounding moments in railroad history is to get the railroad through the Sierra Nevada. Uh, here it is in the middle of winter, Chinese with their sun hats again, Chinese coming from southern China, semi-tropical, and here they are finding themselves building a railroad through the Sierra Nevada winter. I'll stop here. Hopefully uh, we can get to more specific questions and I can go on and talk to you, talk to you about some of the other evidence that we found and some of the experiences uh, that we were able to reconstruct. But I'll turn it over to Will now, and um, uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Gordon. Um, I think you got to uh, unshare your screen so that I can share share mine. Oops. No, I don't want to do that. Okay. Okay, Will. Yes, I'm good. All right. Um, so. It's a pleasure to be here at the Chinese Historical Society. Um, uh, as Jean mentioned, I'm a longtime member, former, former board member, uh, former vice president. Um, and this is, uh, this is certainly different from, from the last, uh, last time I presented to the society from uh, when, we, when we met in, a, in the auditorium at Castellar. Um, but it's, it's a pleasure to be here virtually um, and to, to be able to speak a little bit about my role uh, in this project. Um, so um, I am the author of one of the chapters um, in uh, the book that uh, Gordon Chang edited, The Chinese and the Iron Road. And I'm going to spend in the next 10 minutes or so a little bit of time telling you about what this chapter uh, is, uh, is about. 
Okay, so tonight really qu quickly what I'll do is I'll spend a, a real brief time going over the chapter. I'll talk really briefly about uh, changing representations of Chinese immigrant laborers in US textbooks. And then finally, I'll say a few words about why the Chinese railroad worker became the dominant representation of Chinese immigrant labor um, uh, in these textbooks. Okay, so um, for my chapter uh, in, the, in this book, what I did was I, I, I examined 119 high school history textbooks uh, published between the 1850s and the 1960s. Um, this included both the physical collection at Stanford's uh, Coverly Library, uh, but also digital collections on Google Books and uh, Hopi Trust Archive. Uh, in this process, I asked a, a few overarching research questions. I wanted to know when did US history textbooks begin to mention Chinese immigrants? When did Chinese, uh, when Chinese immigrants were mentioned? Did these textbooks give examples of Chinese labor? And to what extent did representations of Chinese immigrant labor change over the 100-year period that I was uh, looking at? Now, going into this project, I assumed one of two things. Either I wouldn't find anything. There'd be no, no representations of Chinese uh, laborers whatsoever. Or, or if I did, then perhaps maybe I would see uh, Chinese laborers begin to pop up around the 1870s, right? When you had the beginning of this kind of nationalizing of anti-Chinese sentiments. Um, as you had in the West, groups like the, the Working Men's Party of California um, pushing for, uh, for, for Chinese exclusion and the, and the slow nationalization of this kind of anti-Chinese movement uh, towards the East Coast. And I thought that, you know, if, if, if I was gonna find something, I would find it uh, in this period. Well, after looking at these, uh, these textbooks, what I actually found was that Chinese immigrant laborers became a significant part of US history textbooks only after the 1882 Exclusion Act. And that when um, these representations first pop up in the 1880s, it's not actually Chinese railroad workers specifically, but a, but a whole multitude of different people or, or professions that are mentioned. And the railroad worker doesn't become the dominant representation of Chinese laborers until the first decade of the 20th century. So we've got Chinese um, immigrants appearing in textbooks uh, for quite a long time, but Chinese railroad workers only becoming a uh, dominant in the period uh, after the turn of the century. Okay, so how do, how do these representations change uh, over time? So the first representations that I was able to find were uh, from the 1850s and 60s. Um, and what, what most of these uh, representations of Chinese laborers uh, or Chinese, Chinese immigrants seemed to, to show was that they tended to represent these immigrants as part of like a cosmopolitan um, atmosphere uh, in the California gold rush. So we've got two excerpts here. Um, the first one is from Augusta Berard's uh, School History of the United States, which was published in 1855 and then republished in 1867. We have here one line. Uh, this is a description of San Francisco. The city was soon thronged with people of all nations. Even the grave Chinamen now walked its streets and introduced into California the peculiar dress dwellings and customs of the celestial empire. Around the same period, Benson Lossing uh, in his pictorial history of the United States published in 58 and then again in 66 wrote around Cape Horn, across the Isthmus of Panama and over the great central plains of the continent, men went by hundreds and far and wide in California, the precious metal was found. From Europe and South America, hundreds flocked thither and the Chinese also came also by scores from Asia to dig gold. So these are just two of the types of examples that we see in the 1850s and 1860s. 
Now, what's surprising, I, you know, I thought that the 1870s these would show a, a, a flourishing of, of representations about Chinese uh, immigrant labor. But what I found was a, a significant decrease in the number of textbooks that actually um, included mention of Chinese laborers in the 1870s. So um, textbooks by Joseph Derry, Joseph Johnson, John Rid, uh, Ridpath, all completely uh, ignore Chinese labor uh, in, in their editions in the 1870s. Not only that, but that textbook which I just showed you, um, Vincent Lossing, actually removes his section on Chinese immigrants for his, for his textbook in the 1870s. So there's this kind of uh, suspicious uh, lack of representation in this period. In the 1880s and 1890s, we see Chinese uh, laborers popping up, this time um, uh, often represented as uh, occupying multiple professions. So uh, here from Horace Scudder's A History of the United States of America, these have helped to build railroads, to work the mines, and to do many kinds of household labor, but they have rarely become citizens. From Robert Howison's uh, 1892 textbook, the Chinese made themselves useful and efficient as workers on railroads, in mines, in factories, in market gardening, in laundries, and in domestic service. And here from Mary uh, Thalheimer's An Eclectic History of the United States, uh, they cross the Pacific Ocean in large companies under the direction of contractors and find employment in the mines, in factories, in market gardening, and domestic service. So we can see here as Chinese uh, laborers are reintroduced to textbooks uh, in the 1880s and 90s that the railroad worker isn't the sole representation, but this slowly changes. So by the turn of the century, the textbooks that I looked at uh, increasingly used only the Chinese railroad worker as a, uh, a stand-in for all Chinese immigrant laborers uh, in the Western part of the United States. So for example, Adams and Trent, A History of the United States, 1903. For the construction of the Pacific Railroad, large numbers of Chinese laborers had been induced to come to the Pacific Coast. Uh, Edward Eggleston, during the time when the Pacific Railroads were building and afterwards, many Chinese laborers came to this country. So you'll see that uh, in, in these two examples, right, we've got the so solidification around the image of the railroad worker around the turn of the century um, as being the sole representation of Chinese immigrant labor. So why did this happen, right? Um, what, you know, we, we can see that there's this trend. Um, so I'm gonna posit one uh, supposition of mine uh, that, that might account for this. I would argue that the reason that the Chinese uh, laborer or sorry, the Chinese railroad worker becomes the, the predominant figure representing all Chinese immigrant labor around the turn of the century and kind of stays in that, that role throughout the 20th century is because of the cultural ambiguity um, that the Chinese railroad worker represents. So what do I mean by this? Obviously, the railroad itself uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century had a kind of like a, a dichotomous type of representation. On the one hand, uh, the railroad represented progress, modernity, manifest destiny. But then on the other hand, um, railroads for many uh, white, uh, of the white working class represented corporate greed and exploitation. So you've got these two kind of split representations of the, uh, of the railroad. And I would argue that these two split representations of the railroad then embodied themselves in the Chinese laborer, allowing this, uh, the, sorry, in the, in the Chinese railroad worker, allowing the railroad worker to become the, the predominant symbol uh, over the course of the 20th century um, as it's a symbol that can both stand in for, for, for different groups uh, and the types of uh, uh, desires they have 
in, 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 in retelling of the nation's past. So um, we see this kind of uh, expressly done in two ways. So we see that there's a split in this period um, in that sometimes Chinese um, railroad workers are referred to as immigrants. And, in, and when they're referred to as immigrants, they often kind of link to this idea of progress and modernity. But at the same time, we see textbooks that refer to Chinese as, quote, coolies. Um, and when they're referred to as coolies, they often um, represent the type of corporate greed or exploitation or threat of low wage labor that uh, many white workers uh, felt Chinese uh, immigrants embodied in this period. And so what I would say is that um, the Chinese railroad worker makes his appearance, becomes the dominant figure at the turn of the century because of this ambiguity. But the suspicious thing about this is, right, if we look at this, it's around the turn of the century when this happens. And this is also around the time in which Chinese exclusion is made, um, is made permanent. So how is it, why is it that the Chinese railroad worker becomes the dominant representation at the same time in which uh, the, 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 the nation's laws have excluded Chinese Americans um, uh, ostensibly forever? Um, well, what I would say is happening is that by the turn of the century, when these textbooks are writing about Chinese railroad workers, they're actually using this kind of, uh, this, this symb the symbolism of the Chinese railroad worker to stand in for their fears about uh, European immigrants from, 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 southern, from Southern Europe. So, so what I argue in my, in, in my chapter is that until 1924, the figure of the Chinese railroad worker was able to em embody two things, both the hopes and the fears uh, that uh, about non-European immigrants, especially those from Eastern or Southern Europe, um, and that the amb ambiguity of this figure uh, allowed, uh, is what allowed for this. So I'm gonna give you just one last example here and then I'll close. Um, this is from David Muzi's uh, textbook in American history. Now Muzi is actually quite inter interesting because he is perhaps the most prolific textbook author of, uh, of the 20th century, certainly between the 1910s and the 1960s, um, his book is, 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 is the, the, the best-selling textbook in the United States. Um, perhaps even some of you might have, have, uh, uh, have, have had an edition of the Muzi textbook um, in your time in school, depending on when you, when you went uh, to high school. Now, what's interesting is we can kind of see this ambiguity represented specifically within Muzi's textbook. So um, I'll read you this passage here. Between 1850 and 1860, the Chinese immigrants to our shores increased from 10,000 to 40,000. The work on the Western end of the Union Pacific, that's a mistake, but the Western uh, Union Pacific Railroad attracted tens of thousands more in the next decade. As these Chinese laborers lived on a few cents a day and were content with dirty quarters and poor food, they were a menace to the American laborer of the Pacific Coast who demanded $4 a day and roast beef. Mobs in California and Oregon organized to run out of town the Chinese coolies in spite of the fact that our government by the Berlin Game Treaty of 1868 had guaranteed the Chinese visiting our shores protection and trade, religion, and free travel. And so we can see even in this one paragraph here, this one paragraph by Muzi, there's this kind of dichotomy in terms of the way in which the Chinese railroad worker was represented. Um, so in conclusion, I'll conclude here um, by saying that, uh, you know, if you were to actually trace, and you can read a little bit more about this in my chapter, but if you trace the, if you continue to trace the representation of Chinese laborers, you'll see that this ambiguity 
allows for, for, for one or the other of these kind of like sides of the figure of the Chinese Railroad to become prominent at different times. So after the 1924 Immigration Act, um, Chinese tend to be represented as coolies, quote unquote. And then after the 1960, or by the 1960s with the 1965 Immigration Act, you begin to have Chinese um, represented uh, more as immigrants. Um, so that's, that's my excerpt. Um, I should share with you that uh, uh, we have a, uh, an offer for everyone who's here on the, on the Zoom tonight. If those of you who are interested in buying um, the, the book that, um, that, uh, that Gordon Chang um, and Shelley Fisher Fishkin have edited, um, you can buy it directly from Stanford University Press for 20% off. Um, if you use the code changfishkin20, so if you write that down, changfishkin20, you can get 20% off by buying it directly from the, uh, the publisher. All right, with that, I will stop my presentation. And I believe what we're doing next is we are going to transition to questions from the audience. We have about uh, 30 minutes here um, for, for Q&A. Um, so if you have a question, what we'd like you to do is to look down. Don't use the chat box. Use the Q&A uh, question at the bottom of your screen. Um, Felicia is going to, to curate those and then ask them to us verbally. So type your, your questions into the chat, um, and um, Felicia will ask us questions, uh, which, which Gordon or myself can type. Please, do we have a question? Yes, so this question was actually before anyone talked. So it's from Brent Bonta. And Brent says, was there a Chinese worker connection to the construction of the AT and SF Railway in New Mexico in the 1980s? 1890s, yeah. Yeah, Atchison, Topeka, Santa Fe Railroad is what we know it as. Uh, good question, um, which opens up a, um, a whole uh, range of uh, questions about what happened to the Chinese after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, many people assumed that the Chinese railroad workers were simply let go. In fact, some people talk about how abused the Chinese railroad workers were, that they had contributed their labor and then were just uh, tossed out into the desert. But uh, we know what we did when we went back and looked in the newspapers of the 1870 and 1870s, and we found uh, articles that described Chinese railroad workers, many of them described as veterans of the Transcontinental Railroad, traveling all around the country to work on railroad lines, local railroad lines, um, down in Texas, Arizona, but also out, way out in Long Island, uh, Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee. Uh, what was astounding to us is that hundreds if not thousands of Chinese continue to work on railroads around the United States uh, in the, uh, after 1869, well up into the 20th century. Many continue to work for the Union Pacific Railroad, maintaining the railroad, uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, and they lived and died as workers on the, on the railroad. But they also uh, worked for other lines uh, all around the country. Now, th this came to su a surprise, but maybe it wouldn't, shouldn't be so surprising because people certainly assumed, oh, you're going to find Chinese railroad workers. Well, they were just on the Transcontinental Railroad. 
but uh, the, the, the digital revolution has opened up to us the possibility of consulting local newspapers all around the country. Uh, these limited run newspapers uh, were a treasure trove of information. They'd be little articles, long articles from Cincinnati, from Missouri about the Chinese who were traveling to those areas of the country to work on local construction problems, projects, and, large, and many of them, the local railroads. Now on the rail, Atchison, Topeka, the Santa Fe Railroad itself in New Mexico, I, don't, I, I suspect there probably were because the Chinese railroad workers, uh, despite the fact they, they were abused and insulted and demeaned at the time, afterwards, as, as Will pointed out, at the time, many of the Chinese, many people around the country uh, valorized, honored the Chinese railroad workers. You can see from the newspaper articles because they saw the Chinese railroad workers as the veteran experienced railroad workers. They had experience in, in, uh, in, in uh, laying the roadbed, in, in, uh, in, in uh, uh, handling explosives, in uh, uh, building trestles, and their uh, expertise was valued. Um, thus, they were considered to be desirable uh, workers uh, and brought all around the country. And in many instances, and you know, I've saw these newspaper articles, some of, the, some of the articles actually complained. They said, we thought the Chinese railroad workers are gonna, were going to be cheap, but they were not. They negotiated and had very high wages. They knew their value and uh, were not as cheap as uh, some had subsequently thought they, they were. So uh, we, we, we know of, of them going to different places. Now somewhere, I think it was in New Mexico, I forget which line. I think it's in one of the books. I should we should mention uh, Chinese in the Iron Road, but the other book is The Ghosts of Gold Mountain, which I have to say is uh, the, the Chinese on the Iron Road is a collection of twenty essays, wonderful essays. Um, one of which was was Will's. The Chinese and the uh, the Ghosts of Gold Mountain is is written in my voice to give a narrative story account. Uh, of the railroad workers story, like from beginning to end, as opposed to scholarly essays on various important aspects of their experience. The two books complement each other. But in one of the books, I forget which which essay, we talk uh, of, of, about evidence of a archaeologist, uh, forensic archaeologist, who found the remain of a small little cemetery graveyard of Chinese railroad workers in New, New Mexico. And these remains were dug up and studied. And uh, it's, it's a very tough story to read, but they found that these railroad workers died because they can look at their bone structure and so forth. They had tough lives. Their bones and, were, were distorted because of the kind of work they did. Many of them had broken bones and some of them had uh, evidence of being shot. So uh, this was the kind of evidence that we be, we had to kind of rely on, and I see there's another question about uh, diaries. Uh, we had, to this day, have never found a single document written by a Chinese railroad worker, let alone a diary. We don't find it, we haven't found a letter, we haven't found a, a, anything. Uh, we, we scoured all over Southern China, but to this day, not a single written document left behind by a Chinese railroad worker. So we had to use imaginative and creative ways to try to uh, think about, try to recover what their lived experience uh, might have been like. And I can talk more about that in a, in a moment, but maybe I'll stop there 
uh, talking about the, uh, the, for the first question by, by Brent. Okay, so we have another question from anonymous attendee. Please contrast the U.S. versus Canada transcontinental railroad worker issues and treatment. Another great question. Um, again, many people don't know that Chinese helped construct the western portion of the Trans-Canadian Railroad. Uh, Ten to fifteen thousand Chinese also went up there to work on the rail line in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. Chinese also went down to Mexico. Uh, they went. They were all around the world. You can find Chinese railroad workers. I discovered uh, 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 evidence of Chinese railroad workers in Africa in the uh, uh, 1870s, 1880s. They were in Peru uh, and, and, and in Panama in the 1850s and 1860s. So the Chinese railroad worker experience is a global experience, not just in North America. But the Chinese were the mainstay of the Canadian Pacific uh, uh, construction effort, which was as bad or perhaps even worse than what uh, they experienced in the United States. Uh, the terrain was treacherous, terrible, because of the Canadian, they had to get through the Canadian Rockies. It was a different sort of uh, terrain. Um, in, the United, in, the, in, in the United States, the, the most difficult terrain was to get through the granite cliffs of the Sierra, the solid granite mountains, uh, which required uh, chiseling and explosives and tunneling, some of which took years to get through some of these, these, these mountains. The Canadian Pacific was very, very steep terrain uh, uh, through the Canadian Rockies, but the, but the rock was different and much more uh, unstable. So there were many avalanches um, and tragic accidents um, along the way. Now, interestingly, is that there seems to, there is more documentation of the Chinese-Canadian railroad experience than, than there is of the U.S. experience. So a little bit, we, we drew a little bit from the Canadian-Chinese experience uh, to sort of make an analogy between what the Chinese railroad workers uh, faced in the U.S. Now, the, the, the people were very much the same. They came from the same regions of China. They were Southern Chinese, all from the Pearl River Delta and near Hong Kong. Um, many of them came from similar villages. Uh, they may have been countrymen, uh, clansmen. Uh, so we, we can know something about the culture of the Chinese railroad experience in the United States by looking at other evidence, including from Southern China, what the home villages were like, what the work culture was like in China, what the culture was like, what they ate, what they did in their leisure time. We can know uh, not necessarily for what they did up in Truckee, but we can know what they did in Southern China or in Canada uh, and, and surmise that that's also what they were experiencing uh, in the Sierra. The other point I would just say about comparing the US and Canadian experience is there is in Canada much more uh, official acknowledgement and honoring of the rail, Chinese railroad workers as contributors to Canadian history than there is in the United States. Uh, you, can, you can find uh, major uh, monuments and uh, tributes to the Chinese in Canada that, that you cannot find in the United States. Now, why is that so? We can have some discussion about the different issues of race and, and reconciliation with the historical past. Uh, you know, Will pointed out how Chinese were written out of textbooks uh, over the years for, for many different reasons. Um, 
part of American history is, is it's a very, it's a, it's a great man, his story of history that we have in the United States is a nationalist one. It's a sort of a celebratory of the national accomplishment. And uh, to, to, to do that, the alien, the immigrant, the minority has to be written out of the narrative. But it's really, you know, as well used the term manifest destiny, this triumph of the, of the American nation, which is considered in certainly monochromatic ways, uh, writes out uh, minorities. Uh, Canadian history is uh, maybe maybe written in a different way. We're just going to just kind of jump in on, on that point. Like, yeah. was, did uh, you, you just mentioned that Canada has this kind of like longer history of recognizing the, the railroad workers? When did when, do you know when that started to happen? Like, when did they start to kind of like really appreciate? Well, uh, I think fairly early on. I don't know. I can give you a date. Maybe you know, in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, people began to collect. Uh, 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 documentation, archives on Chinese America. And then we, in the past 20 years, the Canadi Canadian federal government, the national government, as well as provincial governments have made a much, to, much uh, effort in trying to really recognize, if, you know, using our vocabulary, the multicultural history of Canada, including the First Nation people, Canada now being bilingual, uh, uh, French and English, you know, these are big changes that were in Canadian history. Whereas before, it really was an Anglo-dominant, Anglo-supremacist sort of country. And, uh, but uh, the past 20 years, uh, they've really gone out to be, uh, take the initiative in trying to find uh, this diverse history. So in British Columbia, was it national? They, they, have, they, they contributed something like, devote a million dollars to a research project up there to help recover uh, British Columbia Chinese uh, Canadian history. We don't have that here. Okay, we have a question from Linda Bentz saying, thank you, Dr. Gao and Dr. Chang for your talks. Could you please tell us more about the lives of the Chinese railroad workers when they lived in China before they came to America? Did they have construction skills when they came to the West? Another good question. Um, the Chinese came from a fairly small region of southern China. Uh, for those who know uh, Chinese American history, they came from mainly from Toisan and Hoiping, or Taiping and Taishan, uh, which are part of uh, four counties, five counties, in a sort of a, a portion of, of southern China near Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, that area was uh, unique. It was long, had long been populated, but fairly, fairly modest in wealth. It was almost all agricultural, although it did have local handicraft industries, including uh, pottery and uh, gunpowder factories later on. Um, now, almost all the the, the work in that uh, area, the political, the economy was agricultural. So farming, fishing, uh, some uh, trading uh, took place. Uh, so the, the Chinese who came to the United States were, were uh, uh, all, uh, all predominantly uh, young men between the ages of 15 and 25. Uh, there were some who were a bit older, even some who were younger. Very, very few, there were some, but very few women um, 
some did come over, uh, and, and many in very poor, terrible circumstances as uh, slave girls, as prostitutes, uh, and some came over as wives and merchants. But we had no evidence of Chinese women working on the China, on the Transcontinental Railroad, although um, we we there is some suggestion that uh, Chinese women did work on some of the trunk lines. Uh, they're listed in some of the payroll records. Uh, Chinese female, they put an F afterward, and worked as, uh, as uh, on, on some of these lines, um, but not on the Transcontinental Railroad. Now the problem with recovering the history of the Transcontinental Railroad, among other things, I mentioned the lack of textual evidence, is that the railroad company itself did not keep good records. They didn't have good HR. Uh, so that's why we don't even know the numbers very accurately. Now, one of the reasons of that is that the railroad, the, the, the Central Pacific Railroad, uh, contracted uh, with the Charles Crocker's company, the labor contracting company, to, uh, to construct the railroad line. And they, in turn, contracted with Chinese labor contractors who did the actual hiring of many of the workers. So they worked in labor gangs, uh, t uh, 20 to 40, and, and a team, if you will. And they were often headed by a, uh, a headman, as they called. And they were paid by the railroad company or the construction company. So there was these, these, these uh, permutations of relationships, these different relationships, and, and, and the records were not well kept by the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, most of these workers had never worked as uh, wage laborers. They worked as farmers in Southern China. But the Southern Chinese uh, uh, culture was very strong, very developed, uh, and, and we had a lot of fun learning about the Southern Chinese uh, culture, local culture, including uh, folk songs, uh, village practices, family practices, uh, uh, spiritual beliefs, uh, which included a very, very strong belief in um, needing to respect those who had passed before, the dead, uh, and the uh, year, the uh, uh, was, is, uh, is marked by almost every month, or I mean, sometimes actually three weeks, uh, events to honor various uh, uh, po populations of those who had passed before, those who were closer in kind, those who were further, those who had relatives, those who didn't have relatives. So even today, today we still have aspects of this uh, culture with the Qingming Festival, uh, even with the Dragon Bow Festival, New Year's, all, all circle around family and honoring those who had passed. And th so this is the kind of the, the, the culture that they brought over to the United States. And in the U.S. at the time, very few Americans had any sense or any sensitivity of these traditions. And so the Chinese seemed to be very odd to them. Uh, but we could look at some of these observations made by the newspapers of these celebrations, these events, the behavior of the Chinese. And... Uh, Today, we can look back and see that, oh, they did these things uh, because of their spiritual or cosmological beliefs. Okay, I mean, we have a maybe I'll just give you one example. I, you know, I didn't want to be too general right here. You know, some of you may know, in 1867, 3,000 of these Chinese railroad workers, way up near Donner Summit, around Donner Summit, the, top, the peak of the Sierra, 3,000 of them in June, uh, late June, went on strike. It was an astounding uh, act. It was the largest strike, labor strike in the U.S. history to that time and for many, many years afterwards. 
Uh, this strike is hardly acknowledged, if at all, in labor history books, even by progressive uh, labor historians. Uh, they just don't even know about this labor strike. This labor strike uh, was recorded at the time by the Sacramento newspapers and they were observing you know, how was it that these 3,000 Chinese all at one, one time stretched out over 10, 15 miles of the construction route in one moment put down their tools and refused to go to work. We don't know anything about the leaders. We don't know anything about, uh, uh, we know a little bit about the demands. The strike was eventually broken after a week uh, when, they, when food was uh, cut off to them and they were sort of starved out. But uh, we were always wondered why did the Chinese take uh, this action on June 22nd or something of this sort? And I thought about it and I went back and thought about their cosmology, that is their worldview. And I realized that they made the strike decision on the day of the summer solstice the longest day of the year. And the Chinese have a lunar calendar. They follow the year because of the phases of the moon. And the summer solstice is a very auspicious day. So I, I think that they, made, they took their dramatic action in line with their uh, cosmological belief of when they would have the strongest male strength of the year. Okay, there's a question from Emmy Kim asking, do you know more about how Chinese were erased from our history books and pictures or impacts of this on people's understanding of how this group contributed to our country? Will, you want to address that? Yes, sure. Um, I mean, one of the things that was interesting from like looking at these textbooks, uh, you know, more than 100 of them published over the course of, uh, of 100 years, um, was the fact that on the one hand, they were ever present, right? Like the, the Chinese, the Chinese railroad workers or Chinese immigrants are are are, are visible throughout this. But then the, the the way in which they're represented isn't in any type of holistic fashion, as you saw, right? There are these snippets, one line or two lines, um, and I think that certainly, like for for Asian Americans and for 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 folks, that, you know, students that are learning about this, um, the inability to see yourself in history textbooks does have a profound way on the uh, profound can have a profound impact on the way in which you look at yourself the way in which you kind of um see your relationship to the world um i don't know uh i would suspect that the textbooks have gotten a little bit better but having said that i, I would think that the problem really is more of a, of a of a problem with learning history from textbooks to begin with like i don't really have much faith in the textbook history that they're ever going to really fix up or that you really even if it's even possible to like truly represent the, the multitudes of history that we that we have in this nation. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess I would say that the, the Chinese are ever present, um, that the that the representations, um, though, don't really li li live up to that complexity. And this causes this can cause issues in terms of the way in which people see themselves in relationship to to the United States. Okay, there's a, another question from uh, Tianjin Montoya. Did either of you find in your respective research instances of meaningful organizing or acts of solidarity between Chinese railroad workers and indigenous slash native or black workers? Uh, intriguing question. And we, we were very curious about that too. Um, there were some black workers in the West and all on the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, mainly on the, eastern portion. These were freed people who came 
uh, to work on the railroad after the Civil War. Some came all the way out to California, and there's evidence of freed people uh, in California, very few in number, but intriguing. Uh, we, we studied uh, uh, the census records and some of the local records of Truckee up near Lake Tahoe, and found on the trekker in 1870, there were four barbers in Truckee listed on the census. All four of them are recorded as mulattoes. So <laughs> really interesting that we could have gone there and try to find out who these folks were. Now for native people, there's also, uh, in one of the essays in the um, Chinese in the Iron Road, an essay written by a colleague who did study that precise question, and other archeologists did look into this, and they found meaningful evidence, uh, evidence of meaningful interaction between Chinese and native peoples. Some of them tragic, uh, native peoples didn't want any foreigners in their territory, but other evidence of uh, cooperation and interaction, including trading of items, Chinese made goods, they found among Native American uh, encampments, and also evidence that the Chinese uh, got food and foodstuffs from Native peoples. There are uh, family stories, a couple of family stories where Chinese, uh, young Chinese, were actually brought into tribes and brought up for many years within the tribe. And, um, uh, and, and so part of their ancestry uh, it was Chinese, but they were they had lived among native people. Uh, I think we talk a little bit about that too in some of the the, the work. Um, I want to, uh, if you don't mind, Felicia, I'm going to just answer address one question here about other evidence of their work uh, in Northern California, up in Fort Bragg or wine caves and there. Well, one of the, one of the, the, the uh, challenges before is is to really do much more work in trying to understand the Chinese <coughs> construct, um, contributions to construction all over Northern California, including the wine caves in Napa, including retaining walls. I didn't show you a picture of this immense retaining wall that still stands up near Donner Summit called the China Wall, where Chinese masons constructed this uh, monumental wall to hold up uh, uh, the railroad line. And these kind of China walls are found all over Northern California. They're, they're, they're not made with any mortar, but just with fitted stone. So there's, there's a lot more to do out there. I hope that some of you will take up the task. Uh, last question is how many died? We think about 1,200. So I think on that note, we are, we're coming to a, to a conclusion here. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Eugene Moy again, who's going to say a few final words. Gene, are you there? Yes. Okay, I'm fine. Sorry about that. Uh, my ancient computer takes a little while to uh, get started. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, thank you, Gordon, and thank you, Will, for a real enlightening uh, presentation here. Uh, I saw that there were many, many questions <laughs> that will maybe some of us will try and, and get to some of it also. Uh, but certainly, you know, there are going to be many opportunities for, for learning about the, the history of Chinese American engagement in the American economy. 
and uh, we're, we're going to hopefully uh, continue the discussion, have uh, further explorations. Uh, but I, I want to share uh, with everyone that our next program will be on October 7th, Wednesday also, probably a little bit earlier in the afternoon um, to accommodate uh, work schedules. But uh, our speaker will be Tamara Vennett Shelton, professor of history at Claremont McConaughey College. And her topic will be about Chinese herb doctors. How many of you have been to a, a Chinese herb doctor or you've gone to, to an herb store? Uh, she's done a tremendous amount of research and produced a book called Herbs and Roots, a history of Chinese doctors in the American medical marketplace. So um, should be a very interesting presentation, pro interesting program. Um, so we look forward to your joining us in future programs. And again, you can always email us. There will be a, uh, there should be a, a closing uh, slide there that show, gives us, gives you the uh, uh, Historical Society website and email address. So feel free to send questions our way. And uh, so thank you very much for joining us tonight on this journey of, of learning about Chinese American history. Thank you and have a good evening.